Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights here with Dane Conan, Dynasty Breaks. He was kind enough to send some product that I reviewed, Tops Archives. So thanks, Dane. Thanks, sponsors. Tops Panini and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugging Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So Dane, welcome to the show. I hope your business is doing great. Many businesses are. And uh, Dane Conan, Dynasty Breaks, hit me with your first question. All right. Thanks for having me on again. It's uh, always fun. I'm going to hit you with a question we get all the time in our email inbox after we do breaks. Should I get my card graded? And my answer is never a short one. There's so many factors that go into it. So my question for you is in Dr. Beckett's collection, which we love to hear about, what determines whether you get a card graded? For me, I'm different, but for the typical person, I think it's the value. If it's something that's more than $100, let's say, just whatever your number is, that if you, somebody to, you know dropped it, if I show it to somebody, they drop it on the floor and it dings the corner and now it's a $10 card, it actually could ding the slab as well. It's mainly value for most people. And uh, that value probably has increased. The long answer is whatever the answer would have been two years ago when grading took less than half as long and cost half as much, you could grade a $50 card, let's say. But now, whatever your threshold is, is probably double because it takes twice as long to get cards back and twice as long. So probably 100 bucks is, is my thing. However, I make an exception also for some cards on my wall that I'm thinking, even though it's not an expensive card, I want to be able to display it in a consistent manner. And your questioners may also be uh, you know, player collectors or team collectors where they'd like to have some slab stuff that they could display and not worry about getting damaged or anything. The other reason that people get graded is because they think they can grade and they think they have a 10 or at least a 9.5. And they need to show their card to a dispassionate friend that says, this is not a 10. And if you grade something and it comes out an eight and it's a new card, you've probably not only lost the grading fee, the card is probably worth less than it was ungraded. What they want you to say is, if you got this card out of my break, it's a great card. Send it in right away. Yes. It'd be worth yes. My, and my first line is always make sure you check the card over very well. Not me. No, but, but let me just say, I would amend the answer. Make sure you have a friend who is not going to just tell you what you want to hear. Because if they ask you, unless you're still holding the card, you haven't shipped it to them yet, which presumably it's in perfect shape at that point other than quality control. But they, they need to have a friend in the hobby that will shoot straight with them and say, hey, dude, this is not a 10. This is a nine at best. If they were to show it to you over the computer, send you a scan, they're scanning services now and photos, still pretty hard to tell. It you is. see it an is. obvious defect, but you can't totally tell. And frankly, Dane, that's one of the fun things about the hobby, that it's not so deterministic. Yeah. And that people are caring enough to ask that question. It shows they love cards. They got to figure out what's the best thing to do here. And I'm going to try to help them. You're going to try to help them. But it'd be good. And it's fun. It's fun grading your cards too. I, I always, it's like, look, I look and then when you get them back, you hopefully have more pleasant surprises than not, but sure. you just don't know. Okay. In the world of breaking, how complicated is the accounting of the business of dynasty breaks, simple or complicated? We thought it would be complicated when we first started. We have made it very simple. We obviously buy from distributors. We buy from the secondary market as well. Sometimes it's hard to get stuff from distributors, as you well know. But we just have a very simple, like a quick in type program. And we use it. We do have a CPA that we use that really helps us out on making sure we get all the uh, tax benefits we possibly can. So I would recommend any breaker, get a good CPA, get one that's reasonable, that's going to be honest with you. He doesn't always tell us what we want to hear. 
But our CPA actually gives us recommendations on here's where you guys need to be on your markup. And if you're not at this on your markup, you guys might need to go get a job somewhere else because per hour, are you really doing yourself a favor here? Get a CPA that's honest with you. And it's pretty simple though, to answer your question. Well, but my point was going to be, if you're selling individual cards, if you're selling a spots in a break, you have a cost and then you have the revenue and th- that you get. But when you're selling individual cards, you've got to keep track of what you paid for that card. There's a lot of SKUs. So really your product is a box, even though you're breaking it up, you're selling the box to a whole bunch of people and then you're breaking it up for them. And so uh, your costs are easy to determine and your revenues are what the people pay you. So so yes. not necessarily a trick question, but I think it's one of the reasons that breakers have proliferated is because the accounting is more doable than having a card shop where you've got a thousand cards in a showcase and they say, show me. That would be, man, That we've thought about opening a card shop, actually. There's not one uh, up in our area, but that's one of the challenges we talked about is it doubles the work there, minimum. Well, it's the reason I think that Fanatics is probably not going to get into the card shop business the local card shop business in the same way to compete with the card shops that are doing it that way. The breakers, they're going to sell boxes. Fanatics is going to have lots of ways to sell boxes. All right. Um, Being married to someone with a PhD myself, I'm married to an English professor. I know you were a professor of statistics. I know how hard it was for my wife and what a long road it was to get her doctorate and to get a tenure track job. And I know you, you were a tenure track professor. So my question is, Growing up, was that always your goal to be a professor and, or in the back of your mind, did you always have, I really want to do something in the hobby and I'm going to do this until I figure out exactly what I want to do? No, not exactly. That's a good question. Thank you. Basically, I didn't really think about it other than I'm I'm coming down the home stretch of my college and all my buddies are figuring out what they're going to do. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was involved in the hobby at a reasonable level, but I don't know that it even was sustainable as a career back in 71. But I was involved uh, pretty heavily and, and getting more involved. I had an opportunity for a fellowship to get a kind of a scholarship for grad school at the same place where I was. So I knew some of the professors. I had lots of friends there. And so I stayed in Dallas. And it wasn't a decision by default as much as one of the subjects I really liked the most in my undergraduate, I was a math major, was statistics. And it maybe your wife is like that. If you just have an affinity for, then you think, well, I, I, and I love learning. So I moved on. Then when I got my PhD, it's a question of what are you going to do with it? I initially went and was a professor. I really enjoyed being a teacher, but teaching is not, well, it's 12 months of the year in a sense, but in another sense, you're not in front of students usually 12 months of the year. So I had the summers off. I had a long Christmas break, spring breaks. It was perfect for doing a side gig of going to card shows and really accelerating my uh, buying and selling and enjoying the hobby. So that's how it worked out. My tenure, I did get tenure early because, and and actually I've never thought about this, but I think I got tenure before I did my first baseball card book. That's quick. That's That's quick. I got it early, but I think I got it before I did that. And the reason that's important is that the scholarly articles, the journal articles, the peer reviewed stuff you have to do to get tenure. uh, I'm not sure I would have had the motivation to do that. Once I started doing the baseball card stuff and publishing and writing books there, they were selling, they sold 10 times as many copies as people read the other stuff. So it was obvious where I should spend my time. But if I hadn't done the articles first, I probably wouldn't have gotten the tenure. And so I'm glad I had the tenure because that gave me then in that last year of teaching, I had a chance to 
not ease off the throttle. Once you have tenure, you have a lifetime job. You have to really colossally mess up to lose your job if you have tenure. But I left voluntarily because I, I became a consultant and and I had you know flexibility in that to do the hobby as well. So I wish your wife huge success. <laughs> Once you get a PhD, you know that you don't know everything. And so for her, for me, it's not the end of the line. It's an affirmation that you're probably on the right track. And then you have some insight and skill in that field and you can share it with others and you have a credential. I just got an email today of somebody that wanted to see if I would do some expert witnessing for him in statistics. Oh, and really? Okay. My answer is probably going to be no, but I'll probably talk to him on the phone and tell him to get somebody else, but I might have some ideas for him. Okay. In your breaking business, do you do forecasting? And if so, what is your forecast? If you're willing to disclose for 2022, were you on target with your forecast for 2021 or you just fly by the seat of your pants and see what the opportunities are? I know this is not a good answer. <laughs> we are a fly by the seat of our pants. We've had pretty large growth, which a lot of breakers have had just because the hobby's grown so much. We haven't grown at a pace of some others. I don't know if we want to. We used to do, when we started out, six breaks a week. That was a big deal to us, to do six cases a week and uh, do the shipping ourselves and all that. Now we have uh, some employees that do the shipping for us. We're doing 20 to 25 cases a week. And we've gotten to the point where our goal is to get to maybe the 30 case level and and see where it goes. Quality of life is really big for me in my life. How much free time do you have versus work time? Because breaking as fun as it is, it's definitely a full-time job. Luckily, my partner and I have been able to uh, change our other jobs. This used to be a side gig. We've changed our other jobs to being uh, just part-time. I do consulting now for my other job, just very part-time. And Dynasty is uh, 45 to 60 hours a week, somewhere in that neighborhood. So have your margins, because we're talking about the forecasting and stuff, as you've increased your volume, because there's pressure with other breakers and um, competition. Have you been able to improve or sustain your margins? Our margins from 2019 to 2020 increased a great deal. Once we got, got rolling a little bit, allocations are really tough. The more allocations you get, the better your margins are, obviously, when you're getting product at wholesale versus going to the uh, secondary market and paying up for it. I would say our margins in some cases have actually gone down in 2021 versus 2020. Just trying to do more product is great. And all breakers want to do more breaks and we have increased our breaks. But again, just because you want to increase your volume doesn't mean your allocation increases at the same level. So you do have to go pay more for product. But you know. it just can shoot your margin. It can, yes. Being too aggressive to have more just for the sake of appearing to be bigger. Right. Okay. Speaking to the current state of the hobby, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. Most of the stuff I collect is from the 90s when I was growing up working in card shops. So in the 90s, autograph cards were a rarity. If you, if you got a game used jersey in the late 90s, it was maybe a holy grail type card. Parallels were very rare. You've seen some of the PMGs and the numbered Michael Jordan cards from the 90s just go crazy. Do we have too much of a good thing now? Those used to be the good things that were very rare that everyone wanted. Now there's tons of parallels, jerseys in every box, autographs in every box. Have we not done this in moderation enough? Have we devalued those things a little bit? In classic economic theory, I'm tracking with you. But if you read the headlines, Dane, why are there million dollar rookie patch autographs now? So apparently they've, I think, decommoditized it in a way by making subcategories of autographs and game used and parallels. And it's almost like they've beaten a dead horse, but they've made it more complicated to where 
you can't say, oh, I got another one of these. No, this is the best one of these, or it's the special one of these, or it's the booklet or the tiger stripes or whatever. And it's the, so they've made it complicated. They've expanded it. Okay. If all they were doing are plain vanilla parallels, like they did 25 years ago, plain vanilla game used and, and standard autographs. But now it's, there's one of ones, there's other subtle, super short prints and things that make it so you have to get involved in the industry. And breakers are helping people understand when you pull something out of the pack, it might look like it's a really good card. I've told people I specialize in low supply, low demand, but there's cards out there that are very rare that are that you could find them in a dollar box. It doesn't mean the and, and they've been in the dollar box for a year. So it's not like they got put in there and I plucked it out the same day it was put in. No, it's been there for a long time and there's just not a lot of demand for it. And so the relationship between supply and demand, also the same supply of a card, you would think you'd have the same demand of two cards that have the same supply of the same player, even two game used of the same player. But no, if you have a, a number to 100 of a game used of a Cal Ripken or Derek Jeter, the price will be different according to what set they're in and the size and the type of the swatch and all that stuff. Same thing with parallels, whether it's the team color or something that blends well, or an autograph that's maybe with somebody else. So I think they've nuanced it to keep that concept alive. Otherwise, they'd be beating a dead horse because they have to look different and they are. And so that's what they've done. So to think in 10 years that they no longer going to have game use, no longer going to have autographs, or no longer have parallels, I think they're all here to stay. And I'm hoping that Panini has hit the limit. <laughs> well, it's those complexities in a growing hobby with a lot of new people coming in. And that's why as a breaker, it's I mean, hard. One, one of our biggest jobs is being an educator. Exactly. It's difficult. You, you can have prisms that are not numbered that are way more valuable than even a low numbered prism. You can see that it looks like a different color, but unless you know, and have really tracked with the product the details, you can think, oh, that's just a it's just a silver. It's not a silver. And silvers are easy now. The sepia ones, I used to think must be tough. And the black and white reverse negatives, not on a very heavily produced product. The man 